Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm Paul Keelan. And I'm Jordan Puga. And today we are going to be looking at 2015's Concussion. So Concussion came out on Christmas Day of 2015. Though it is not that long in our past, it still is helpful to set the scene and to look at some of the other films that were leading the box office that weekend. So I'll let you start with the top film that led the box office on this Christmas weekend. And it really helps put us into the period in which this film came out. Leading that Christmas Day weekend was Star Wars The Force Awakens, which brought in $49 million that weekend. I was obviously there for that. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so that's probably why I didn't see Concussion in theaters. Completely miss it. The next uh, movie on that list coming in at number two was Daddy's Home, bringing in $15.7 which is really good for a comedy. And that was starring Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg. I haven't seen that one, but my parents, I remember, raving about this movie and <laughs> absolutely loved it. I still haven't seen it yet, but they it's one of the more recent comedies when they recommend comedy that they keep telling me to, to watch. So it's, it's one I do want to check out. I have to watch it now. I started at like 20 minutes or so and I couldn't do uh, it. It seemed kind of ridiculously silly, but that'll make me smile just knowing they loved it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I was watching Daddy's Home 2 or Daddy. I don't think there's a second already. So maybe I it was a second. I think there is a sequel. Yeah. Because I, I believe, yeah, it's one of those more recent comedies that was somewhat successful. Yeah. 15.7 million. It's telling me how far Will Ferrell has fallen in the last few years in that that Sherlock Holmes one he kind of did. Um, I don't know what it was called exactly, but it was also with John C. Riley. It looked kind of funny, but the reviews were just awful and it made oh, nothing in the theaters. Exactly. No, I haven't seen that one, but I speak to what you said. I completely forgot about that movie. I've never seen the trailer for it and did not bother following up on it. And I, I like mean, Will Ferrell too. Yeah, me too. I can't <laughs> wait till we have our Will Ferrell month and watch all of his sports comedies. He's such an enthusiast for sports too, especially LA sports where we're basically located. Yep, where you can see him when you watch when you watch LA teams, you can sometimes catch him there. Yeah, he's a diehard USC fan for one, and he also is a co-owner of LAFC. Uh, oh, I didn't which, know that. Yeah, he leads the chant. Behind the goal of the LAFC side is the equivalent of the Raiders' black hole when they were in Oakland. It's absolutely nuts. I think it actually surpasses the black hole, in my opinion. It's not as uh, depraved. They're not, like, getting <laughs> wasted. They'll kick your ass in the parking lot or wear an opposing jersey. Or knife you in the parking lot, yeah. <laughs> but... It is just raucous festival of drummers and 50 people in a row, arm in arm, jumping up and down and singing songs the whole game. It's amazing. It's a complete energy. Yeah. And Will Ferrell often is in there leading the cheers. Uh, YouTube it. It's uh, so enjoyable to watch uh, Will Ferrell lead the cheers in that section. So yeah, I can't wait for that month. I also recently watched Will Ferrell's movie where he is on Eurovision, which is very much a sports film, even though it's about musical competition. Yeah, how was that? I liked it. I had a blast. It was like perfect for quarantine to me. It was mindless and silly and had entertaining musical numbers that were tongue in cheek and stupid funny. And I just, I, I had fun. So yeah, when you went to Star Wars The Force Awakens, did you buy tickets in advance and go way wait in line or anything or did you wait a week or so no i was actually that day went christmas day with our family and it's like with star wars movies they always just add times to it pretty much throughout the day we just found like a later time and just went to go check it out it's like uh me my girlfriend my parents uh my sister and her three kids all packed in to go watch star wars awesome what yeah. what was your feeling on that first viewing to try to oh, take star us wars? yeah 
Oh, we dug it as a family. It was such a good family experience. Funny because we had like the kids and we took my youngest nephew and he, that was like when he was three or something like that. So he was all, he was all about the action. So whenever something quiet, like when are they going to fight? And, like the theater would laugh up. Like you had the theater cracking up. You had some good commentary, like good kid commentary in there. But it's one of those movies. I remember my dad actually really liked it because it was so much like the original trilogy with the practical effects. He's a painter for um, the studios. That was his uh, job. He painted uh, movies for Paramount and Universal and stuff like that. And he, he was actually digging like uh, the aesthetics of The Force Awakens. And then the other part though, it kind of goes into it because for me, um, it was just, you know, watching it as a Star Wars fan, just the next chapter. Of course, I'd be there, but it's cool watching it with the younger generation, how they're reacting to it. Because they had seen the other trilogy and the prequels before to get ready for it. And like the kids just absolutely cried when Han Solo died. And so like oh. their experience was nothing like when I watched Star Wars. When Obi-Wan Kenobi died, I didn't, I didn't cry. I was like, go kill him, get him, get him, Skywalker, you got like, revenge, that fool just killed your mentor. And I, you know what I mean? Like, I knew he was going to fuck up that Death Star. This one was like different. The kids were like, oh my God, they just killed, they killed Han Solo. Han Solo's dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like way opposite. So like, there's this theme of watching these new Star Wars movies. I, I tend to take my, my nieces and nephews with me to go see them. And I think with the exception of Rogue One, they're always crying because some main character dies. And I, I find out they're more attached to the character than I am which I find so hilarious because I've been trying Star Wars fan my whole life. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm not that all attached to them when they died to me. I'm like, they, they got to go. They're old <laughs> for them. It's so <laughs> devastating. It, it's, it's interesting the, 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 the way it impacts the other generation as opposed to the audience who's like super stoked to go see it, you know? Yeah, that is fascinating. It's also just when you're young, you're more attached to the like humanistic elements, I think. Yeah. And when you're older, you do understand the tropes and the arc of a story and you expect all of the beats that are going to happen. If you're a Star Wars fan, you probably know almost everything before you go <laughs> as much as you try not to. So yeah, I thought The Force Awakens was really well done. It was a blast as well. It was easy for me to see. I was in Korea, so it's not the same hysteria over there. Um, they enjoyed it. It was played a long time there, but it was just walked right in. So yeah. In third place this weekend was Joy, David O. Russell's film with Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper. It's one of a few films uh, O. Russell did with those two. I believe he also made American Hustle, which was an amazing and very quickly forgotten film. But uh, Joy, I truly liked. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence plays a matriarch and entrepreneur who starts a mopping kind of industry. And it is a great film of powerful women and well acted. And I think David O. Russell became unpopular because of his on-set antics where he seems to be a very intense figure who berates and screams at his actors and actresses. Or he, he could be a little bit menacing and there's clips of him that really tainted his reputation. But as an artist, uh, he puts out really quality work. If you haven't seen Joy, I totally recommend watching Joy. How about American Hustle? Have you seen American Hustle? I haven't. I yeah. remember the fervor around it too when it came out. It was critically acclaimed. Yeah, it was. And that's a shame. I, I wish that we wouldn't be so sensitive. I get that we are, but good piece of art is a good piece of art mm -hmm. in my mind as well. So uh, I can agree more. Yeah, yeah. American Hustle and Joy are quality films. Uh, they deserve to be watched. Uh, coming to fourth place this weekend was Sisters with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. I did not see this film, but it's pretty much the equivalent of Daddy's Home in my mind. Uh, but with a feminine energy. It, I believe, is about two sisters who become sorority sisters again and go back to college. So it's more along the lines of old school or any of those middle-aged individuals going back to school or college films. Never Been Kissed, I believe, is the one. Could you think of some? There's so many of this. Oh, my uh, favorite is still Billy Madison falls in that arena still. 
True. Duh. Uh, <laughs> Billy Madison. Yeah. There's countless. I uh, just Google films about old people going back to school and you'll, you'll have a great <laughs> list. I'm sure on some website that like screen rant that <laughs> tallies every single type of genre imaginable. So uh, concussion comes uh, in fifth place this weekend, earning 4.5 million modest amount. Didn't get a lot of publicity leading up to it. I don't believe but it's a pretty big staple in the last 20 years to have a Will Smith film come out around Christmas or on Christmas, I've noticed. Mm -hmm. And it kind of was that film. It was an adult, smart, stylistic film that we're going to talk about a lot. So I don't want to even try to summarize it, but I get that it only made $4.5 million. And it actually started to gain some momentum as it got a little bit of Oscar buzz. We'll talk about whether it was worthy of Oscar buzz or not, but it ended up with $87 million domestically and 105 worldwide which is not bad at all i'm not sure if that's including like vod and things because i saw a bunch of different numbers but according to the box office online website box office mojo that's how much it made and that's quite impressive to me for yeah. uh, kind of a small quasi indie adult film uh, that's more intellectual and uh, you know it's not a blockbuster uh, in any way and it's not really a sports film in the traditional sense um, so, Concussion was written and directed by Peter Ladesman, who hasn't done too much. He has a few credits here and there. Uh, the only other film I really want to bring up is Kill the Messenger, which he also both wrote and directed. An excellent film, criminally underwatched, perfect for quarantine when nothing's coming out and everyone's watching whatever garbage that just feels new. Just get into some of these not seen recent classics and there's so many of them that sets a scene for the christmas weekend box office in 2015 just five years ago but it feels quite distant from now so uh let's now get into this film the cast is very familiar for, with us for the most part and it's pretty much a one-man show he has some supporting characters, but it's Will Smith's film. And right off the bat, I want to get into the question of what do you think about Will Smith's acting in this film? And what about that Nigerian accent? Do you approve? Do you have ambivalence? Or did it rub you the wrong way? I'm ambivalent about it because I eventually settle into it. It's fine as I go through the movie. I have a weird connection with Will Smith doing an African accent because like as we've discussed, I'm a, I'm a big Marvel fan. And for years, Will Smith was always tied to being Black Panther. It always threw me off as, I'm like, Will Smith, like, yeah, he has the appeal, the look, obviously the star power to pull off such a role. But I could never picture him doing an African accent. Because I was, as I read Black Panther comics, I always picture, you know, as you know, he's from Africa, you have to have an African accent. I could never picture Will Smith doing it. And so when this came on, I kind of laughed. Because I was, I was like, that would be his T'Challa? Not saying that's how he would do T'Challa, but like, you know, it was, it was this weird disconnect for me, kind of settling into his take on that accent. And it's also, I still associate a lot of Will Smith roles with action, Independence Day and stuff like that, Men in Black, even though he's way beyond that, way beyond that. I still see him as that role. So it takes me a second to kind of settle in. And then with the accent on top of that, um, it's a little bit much at first. But by the end of the movie, though, he, he really does embody, this movie does a good job of embodying that immigrant story. As he builds into that character, I think that's where it, it helps that realize for me. Great insights. I did not know that he was considered to be a forerunner, be a character in Black Panther. I don't see him in that, so I'm glad he didn't take yeah. that role. He would have been too big. I'm so glad, you know, Chadwick Boseman, rest in peace, got the role. And even uh, Michael B. Jordan, who is pretty famous now, but still not Will Smith's status. I'm glad that the actors in that film were the perfect 
level in which you didn't have too many associations with that. Exactly. And on that note, I think Will Smith does a very good job in this film knowing who he is and knowing how much work he must have done to master the cadence of this accent. But the problem is he's Will Smith and I just know him too well. And Mm -hmm. it's just an uncanny experience when an actor you know so well and you're so familiar with tries to inhabit something. To me, a scene that conveyed this disconnect, I think kind of what you're talking about here is the dance scene. We're supposed to believe that Will Smith can't dance. I can't, as an odd person in the audience, it's very hard to have him and his wife have this, it's supposed to be a very sentimental moment. It's, the music's great. The, the scenery's all nice, but still someone trying to tell Will Smith how to dance. I just can't get by that. This is the guy who did getting jiggy with it. Come on. That is a great point, right? There's just some major dissonance in this film and the character he's playing. He even feels probably a bit too young for this character. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, I'm not too sure about the real-life character or person he portrays in this film. To be just bluntly honest, I never watched any videos of him speaking. I'm sure there are some out there. But Amalu, I'm sure, is a little more stiff and probably older. And, you know, as a scientist, to me, he's probably a little bit more rigid and uh, uptight than Will Smith is. And those are all stereotypes, but I am tell from the but, depiction but of the film. With the quick, yeah. I would say with the quick Google search, you're pretty spot on with his depiction, though, because he's not he does not look anything like Will Smith. Just like the guy in the in the movies The Rock plays when he coaches the football kid looks nothing like The Rock. It's like a white dude. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those. It's not, I'm not saying that this doctor wasn't white and they, they have like typecast or anything like that, but he does not look like Will Smith when you do a quick Google image uh, search. Yeah, you could tell Will Smith is way too like handsome and young for this role. So that also comes across, but he does a decent job with what he's given to work with. He has that Christmas Day movie charm in it. He really does. It's a very treacly saccharine film in many ways. It wouldn't work if he yeah. wasn't so handsome, though, because this movie, he is the hero of a movie that's all just dialogue and I'm against this major American institution. That It wouldn't work with like a Paul Giamatti in there trying to, you know, run this race. You know what I mean? I guess in that regard, it's like essential that you get like a Will Smith type character to really drive in this, you know, meager type character. It's interesting. I think it wouldn't work for mainstream audiences. I think there's a film somewhere in here that's way more raw though that actually is quite Mm -hmm. entertaining but it wouldn't be what this film is which I agree with. It would be something more independent. I don't know if you've seen the film with Denzel Washington where he plays a lawyer. I believe it's the director who did Nightwalker and it's his second film. And he plays a borderline autistic lawyer in Los Angeles who is basically fighting this system. And that's a really interesting depiction to compare with Will Smith in this because there's a sheen in this Will Smith depiction that feels very like a like glossy. That yeah. character that Denzel Washington inhabits is neurotic and awkward and ungainly and overweight and graying and it's way more mesmerizing. The film is very, very incisive and it's a scathing attack on American capitalism in a very strong way. Uh, It's another great film and it shows a different way of taking a sort of heady intellectual character for a very mainstream African-American actor who's quite handsome and usually plays a kind of a playboy type police officer, you know, something a little bit more masculine and vital, but they went two different ways. Will Smith's depiction in here, to me, is just, it's too neat. It's too tidy, just like the rest of this film. It's almost an emblem of this whole film, which feels a little bit sterile, a little clinical, a little too crisp. At the same time, it's very entertaining to watch, and it is an accent that he does pretty well 
uncomfortable as it is knowing that it's all artifice. So it opens up with Will Smith right in the courtroom and it opens up with him explaining all of his degrees and uh, he's kind of a quirky character. He seems almost a bit narcissistic. To me, he's a, a character in his own right. I don't know if you noticed this, but did you have any problems with him as his depiction kind of as a cliche? Actually, I was going to say, because one thing I liked about this, because cliche in terms of how the scientific community and academics in general are represented in mainstream media, he hits all those buttons. He plays that to like a to a T and it could be more. This movie does a good job of like focusing on a lot of critical aspects of science and academia. We still get this weird just character of these representatives of those disciplines. And in that regard, it's kind of like a disservice. Maybe it's because I've been listening to some interesting, interesting conversations about all the diversity in African-American community. And they were talking recently about the Nigerian community as being a kind of very specific demographic that is renowned amongst many. And it has Mm -hmm. statistical backing for this. I'm not an expert on this, but for having a certain pluck and a certain very high level of academic and financial and entrepreneurial success in America. Um, They kept coining it like this African pluck, this like, and he represents that to me almost as a caricature. And Mm -hmm. I got kind of annoyed with how many times they, I get that they were trying to build his character through it, but how many times they talked about all of his accolades and all of his degrees because it almost felt patronizing at the end. It didn't feel like it was boosting him up anymore to me. It felt like uh, it had an inverse effect to me, which is, it's odd. I, I get that they were, they were trying to elevate his character, but it came off as smarmy and glib and it turned me off this time around. Perhaps it's because I'm reading other things into it. Yeah, it's an interesting reading because for me in the beginning, it felt like, again, the idea when you are an immigrant, you have to double down on your expertise at all times. It is a thread they explore throughout the movie. I felt like they were openly laying that out in the beginning, again, with the heavy-handed accent, it being Will Smith. And then the idea that the courtroom doesn't take him seriously until he continues on with, like, with the list, right? And that comes later with the idea when he insists on people calling him doctor right? Because that can be seen as, you know, kind of like self-aggrandizing, but it's, it goes back to the idea that he has done all the work and he has earned that title of doctor. And that, that title is something that is not just given to you. And I feel like it's one of those things that ties into like a lot of topics of today of, you know, people just discrediting experts and they don't understand the work that those experts do to make these conclusions, which is explored in depth in this movie. But I think that's where it starts out in that courtroom scene where we see him and the white jurors who see the immigrant talking to them. It's not until they realize he has all these degrees and then some that he can be taken seriously. And it's the idea that you always have to credentialize yourself to the American public for them to actually accept you yeah so he is fighting right it is probably just my it's a mixture of like i was being too pessimistic in my critique there to a degree i realize now and too naive or too idealistic because i could see that if it was possibly a different ethnic character right with the same on degrees we wouldn't have to hear that and just having to hear that shows how stigmatized just we are the other thing i was gonna say sorry i'm gonna cut you off again but like it's also a bit of uh, that kind of like plot overload where we're giving so much information about our character just for the sake of giving the building character it's like it's like it's right in the beginning when we first introduced him and we're basically just getting his resume (laughs) which is kind of like a no-no in like writing in a way but it is a courtroom right so it, it does the exigence is there for that setting but it, it really serves us two ways i don't know if it's successful in that but it does just give like a lot of just blah, here's a lot of information that is useful for this plot but you kind of just get it out of the way there in like a couple lines love that you brought that up that's such a big comprehensive problem but focus of mine when i think about this film is that the level of hand feeding you or spoon feeding you the yes. exposition right yes is pretty overt 
at times. But then it's also well done because like you said, they put it very wittily and cannily into scenes that where it fits. And so at one point as a writer, I was appreciating the craft because it's hard to devise very neatly fit like backstories into things mm-hmm. in a way that that just flows, that gets you all that exposition, right? It's it's like a film that's it's very didactic. It's very scripted. Screenplay just screams at you that it's a screenplay. And at times I'm rolling my eyes because it's just too much artifice. It feels stilted, uh, like mm-hmm. that beginning scene. But then at times I appreciate it just for its craftsmanship because it really fits a lot of information this film and builds on themes very well. I do like at the same time, as much as I just was very critical of it, the fact that they really build on him as an African immigrant who is able to see clearly because he's an outsider Mm -hmm. and he is fighting not only the NFL because his science incriminates the very essence of their industry, puts their entire economic infrastructure at risk, but he's also fighting the stereotypes about Africans. And there's quotes later about the stereotype of the African voodoo doctor. And he even says, I think that they think I'm here to like clean their sins. The screenwriter and director here, I think does a very good job fitting all this in. Yet at the final product does feel a little bit superficial. Yeah. And I think the next thing we get that is the way his wife is introduced into his life through like just the setup. It's through a church meeting, essentially, that he's helping her out coming from a new country. But right away, it's too transparent. Like, this is the love interest. Boom. She's literally dropped into the plot. She's, yo, lives with him. It's only so many ways you can take that plot. Eventually, though, I will say her character is one of the more likable characters of this. I don't want to come off like I'm hating on her character. I just felt like there's other mechanisms of getting this character in here. And again, it's based on a true story. And there's, there's this meta narrative here of God works in mysterious ways, I think, that this screenwriter is trying to play with. And they, they come off as kind of crude, like narrative devices. You know, the girl of your dreams is just plopped in there. He's this lonely guy who doesn't socialize with anyone. There you go. You got your wife. You know what I mean? Like the idea that, which that they placate that he was the, the right person to get, um, who is it? Mike Webster's body, right? The idea that he's faded into this role is partially explored, not really. It's just, it's there. It's not really built upon. It's kind of like you're saying, there's a lot of seeds of themes that you can pick up on, but I don't know if that particular theme builds up into a larger picture though. The intervention of God or whatnot into this into this text. Perfect segue. So Gugu Mbathara is one of my favorite actresses right now um, in terms of small roles. There's everything she does I really enjoy, but I thought of her in the same way as I thought of Will Smith in this film. She felt really stilted and I just felt a little too much discomfiture watching her play this role. It was too syrupy for me. I felt like she was such a cipher. From the very beginning, their interaction doesn't feel authentic in any way. And you said it, they just drop her in. She feels like a plot device. And then he's like giving her money and then gives her this lecture about need is need. Don't be uh, ashamed of asking or, or looking for help. And then he's both a little bit condescending towards her and she tells him that she was a nurse and she's obviously qualified as well. Even that line, I, I really like the line, need is need, because some people are too prideful to ask for help when they mm-hmm. actually need it and it's not their fault. But it came off as written, probably say this many times in this yeah. podcast, just like the whole part about the TV, that motif didn't feel at all natural when you know she tries to watch the TV and he doesn't like the TV and that's his quirk. And of course, they're going to bring that it like three or four times in the film. Yeah, And of course, it's going to kind of come in the final speech where he talks about how his wife loves football and it's beautiful. And then there's a scene in the middle where she says, don't you see how beautiful it is? And so I do appreciate, as you said as well, though, 
how all these things do accumulate really well. It's a very cohesive script. So it's hard, but it's very twee to me. T-W-E-E, more like a literary term. It's, a, it's when something is just too, uh, I would almost say West Anderson-y, but like just too cute. And okay. it, feels, it feels weird, but this movie feels too cute. It's like a little bow tie on everything. That's an interesting way to play because I, like, I kind of use the word tidy for a true story because it's based on a true story. I keep coming back to that. That's the thing that keeps throwing me off on this. It's too plotted out, too character central. Even though it's based on a true story, I see most of his character as fictional. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. the, particularly the, the relationship with him and his wife. It's too fictionalized. Um, it doesn't come off as authentic, like you said already. It doesn't come off as romantic. It's just like we talked about it. And even with these other movies with even with kids sports movies any given sunday actually not any given sunday because any given sunday didn't necessarily have this um the women in that movie were much more functional and sort of a real purpose but it's that obligatory love interest and, and it's at times it's just there like we, we like we've seen in some of these other movies like with mighty ducks 2 when we have that yeah. random bombay with the with the tutor or whatever it was obviously it's much more you know, it's much more thorough in this one and you know they have a family and it, there's real at stake here but it kind of conflicts with the main point of the story which is that concussion in his battle with the nfl and i'm not necessarily sure his his journey with his wife really culminates the way it's supposed to culminate as that motivating factor at the end of the movie i see your point let me dissect this a little bit further too they do have a bleak purpose for her in that narrative it's a circuitous way that she's involved they don't I don't think emphasize it enough. And it is that she does have a passion for football. And I really feel like they missed the ball on that one, or supposedly she does. And his problem is he just doesn't understand football as well, right? So yeah. it's his virtue as well, right? Because he is disaffected by the sport on a visceral level. He does note late at the end that he recognizes its sublimity from afar, which I like. I, I, I like that the kind of poetic musings on football that he has, just it's almost like an art form, but she just has a more chemical, neurological, emotional connection to the sport that comes in his final speech. And it it kind of shows you that it informs a little bit of his, of his understanding of his research and the ramifications and impact and gravity of his research. There's just so many jarring moments where like they're not supposed to be, but he sits on the couch once when she, I think she's watching Will of Fortune and he has a jar with water and an egg and he explains like this is what happens when these football players' brains are battered around in their helmet. It feels so unbelievably contrived to me. I cannot picture a scientist doing that for his wife. It, it doesn't feel like sweet or endearing. It feels didactic and super annoying and yeah so i don't like that but to me that seemed like a cliche and i don't mm -hmm. use this that negative because there's only so many ways you can explain brain trauma and like that's one of the go-to's is you use some sort of like the egg or some sort of soft thing and, and liquids to me it was, it was over the top seeing him do the experiment in front of her like you said but she's sitting on the couch i think watching tv or whatever while I, while i did like the sound effects of the scene though because i remember that scene's cut well with like some of the hits mm -hmm. of Cly like stiller hits i remember like listening to it on stereo i was like oh it's actually really cut like the sound's really good here it's like it's actually jarring with with the shakes and stuff but i'm also like i'm bored with you 100 that it's it's a little too didactic it seems too much like something i would i would write in my job as an example of a tbi injury this is what it's like i like that you i seem to be a little more forgiving of it though at the same time because it made me realize the difficulty that this film has set before in that the topic it's trying to broach or get across is not very cinematic it reminds yeah. me a bit of the big short, you know, the economic collapse and subprime mortgages and all that is not very cinematic. Yeah. And what that film did, though, is it realized that it had a choice. It could either enter the, the realm of cliche or 
it could be innovative. And instead, it broke the fourth wall, right? And they have the great scene with Margot Robbie in a bathtub telling you to the screen things, right? And saying, this is boring exposition. So I'm just going to explain it to you. And suddenly, it was a witty way to do it. But this film just feels a little old school to me. It's a little 1998. That's interesting. Now you said that, like, we should have a concussion done by Oliver Stone. We should use the same talk and see his perch. I can see him pulling some kind of, conveying the exposition well that way. Conveying the technical jargon more lively, more engaging kind of like what you described there yeah i could imagine what oliver stone would do with this film and it would be mind-blowing but as a very conventional mid-90s legal based adult film they do a good job here and the wife and her defense has a few important scenes where they're by the river in pittsburgh and he realizes that he's going to actually get citizenship is pretty powerful and the fact that the really the film comes down to this departure of Amalu towards the West Coast, kind of hiding away with and just starting a family. They, they are interested in his life as well and what this did to his life and the sacrifices he made, starting with having to spend his own money to do the research, yeah. the 20 grand, because... Because Albert Brooks, as supportive as he, as he is, wouldn't fund it. Or he, he at least represented the company uh, that wouldn't fund it. Again, I'm not familiar with the actual story of it. I don't know how much of it he actually funded and stuff. But again, I love the idea of how there's the two stories going on. There's the pursuit of the American dream and that his conception of that. When he tells her, you know, you have to pick someone to kind of emulate the idea that the immigrant must like construct their outward self. And I love that he says, I picked an older, bald, white man because he's the best at what he does. I just like that <laughs> line because... Larry David would just approve of that. It's what Larry David would say, like all his lawyers and, you know, his professionals are all bald, bald white guys. That's a Larry David approved line. So I just, I just chuckled at that. I love but, that line too. Yeah. But I'm carrying on with the idea. I love the, the way it diverges from his American dream to the immigrant reality when he's not accepted as American or doing something that is like, should be heroic and should be celebrated in, in that vow. I love that the way it just kind of diverges there. I do too. And what's funny about that cynical line, because it is very cynical where he's Mm -hmm. saying he has to imitate the old balding white dude to have posterity in America, is that you really do like Albert Brooks's character, who to me is the old balding white guy that we really see. And Albert Brooks is the one who gets uh, indicted and investigated and charged by the FBI later on and kind of takes a hit for him just because he's affiliated with Amalu. As always, Albert Brooks is pretty funny, right? I love when he's like, he, he, he tells Amalu that he'll get him a job on the prison laundry in that scene. He has a very likable energy. And what's funny is he too is just notoriously throughout his career, very witty about his own critiques of the American dream, American capitalism. So I think it's just a side note, but from our Brooks, he used to write and direct his own comedies, which are all fantastic. I'm not going to list them all, but they're fantastic. And I just really think this role kind of in a strange way fits his career trajectory really well because he's an insider yet also an outsider in this movie. What do you think about some of the facts? So we talked about how they're, they're a little bit didactic in their exposition, but we get great descriptions and great metaphors and great facts about CT, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I was riveted. I didn't believe the scenes in which it was talked about uh, in the sense that I didn't buy into it as a conversational topic or it was too eloquent, but they do a really good job. And I'm just going to throw out a few of the facts and you can throw out some of the ones that you found that I find fascinating. We'll kind of talk about it. So at 60 Gs, a human brain can get concussed. The normal head-to-head contact in football is 100 Gs. So that's almost double a concussion. And 
they do a really good job of giving you the accumulated statistics of how much trauma these brains endure throughout a career. So if someone starts in peewee football and goes all the way and actually has a professional career, they will on average, they say get 70,000 blows to their head. And then in that scene, they focus on the The center. center. Yeah, which is the roughest position. So that's another Mm -hmm. thing we got to talk about too. So these are, I want to stop here because there's so much now that we're into the science and going to debate some of the politics and maybe even uh, conjecture our own, or you could throw out and postulate your own opinions about what the NFL should do or what uh, your moral take is on this because it's tricky as NFL fans, as sports fans, how to approach this very uncomfortable revelation because it's new. We didn't have the science before. Let's start one thing at a time. Uh, Let's go with the center, right? One thing that we have to talk about when we talk about CTE is that it doesn't impact all players equally. And I thought that was fascinating, this film, because it really doesn't. It really impacts certain positions. What do you think? I'm just curious because they don't get at too much of the specifics. Uh, Would you say besides the center is a very endangered position in football? Oh, there's so many. Like like they they give a few details, but like, for example, running back, Mm -hmm. you're taking so many hits, sometimes three downs. I mean, running back is a huge one. Wide receiver because the amount of speed you get going down that field. And when you do get cracked, that's when you're getting into, like you said, those 100G figures and stuff like that for sure. Like the research on that's been pretty, pretty conclusive like those high impact spots tons of them on the defense right I mean, when we look at football i mean unless you're the kicker essentially if you really want to come down to it you're at risk of all these stats and the quarterback is for the most part a little bit less i would say endangered but then they had the biggest hit of the whole film almost was a sack on the quarterback that was yeah. a head-to-head sack there's and no way it, around it quarterbacks they're the targeted player no matter how much protection you get to them you can't minimize the impact they're going to get hit even if you're not targeting the head exactly and i do love that sequence because it's it's real footage that they yeah. spliced in there. They, of, they picked some good clips too for that time period, I thought. Yeah, and they picked the the segment where they would say jacked or he just got jacked up or whatever, right? And it makes America look so barbaric and sadistic. I think that's an interesting one because they picked that and it's it's an overtop one. It's a segment that's meant to highlight violence of football. Like you can find it in any sports, like top 10 hockey hits, UFC, the top 50 knockouts where we're just watching 50 concussions in most brutal fashion. But the one thing that I thought would maybe made this point better is like the idea that when this happens in a game, it's just go to commercial break and it normalizes this shit beyond belief. Like I was just, when we're, <laughs> when we're doing this right now, before we hopped on here, I stopped watching the football game on an injury and I don't know what happened, but I know the dude was down. He was in pain and cut to commercial. When they come back, he's off the field. They're going again. And that's to me, this is the, uh, it's really pulling back the curtain too, despite the settlement, despite the knowledge and all that, right? We don't even think about what's going on to a degree to his brain. Once he comes back from commercial, you know, the game's gone and, and we move on. That's a very cool point and interesting too. And it's not that we're just merciless or ruthless or unsympathetic but it's that we don't want to wallow in suffering and pain we want action we want sports to be high octane information we want the adrenaline we don't want to just sit patiently while someone gets carted off the field but it's too real because because even for the players anytime anyone gets hurt any professional player will tell you it's a sense of shock of awe down the field because everyone's mm-hmm. for a moment realizes again the reality like they all know the risk and when you see that risk you see the way the game changes when someone gets hurt how timid players are for the first few minutes you know uh yeah i remember even playing our little sports when someone got really hurt the 10 minutes or so after oh, yeah. you, you have a totally different mindset suddenly right but it's so complicated because at the same time, even the football players are not like milk toast individuals. They're, <laughs> they're pretty audacious. They have tons of bravery and valor and testosterone. And they also love the hits, a lot of them. I know they don't love the pathology of, of a brain that's diseased with CTE, 
not trying to say that, but it's not just that like we're these sadistic voyeurs. It's a culture that widely subscribes to an enjoyment of recreational violence. So it's really hard to morally attack or disparage or slander or malign. And the people who have the easiest job are people who don't get it. And that, that is one of the things this film gets into an interesting dialectic with is that Will Smith's character, Amalu, is a Nigerian scientist who does understand American football. And there is a degree of known risk and personal biological peril that the entire culture implicitly at least, and usually in, to some degree explicitly acknowledges, yet still is willing to put up with. And so it's easy for an outsider who doesn't have the same passion or understanding the complexity of everything, the danger with the glory to attack it. But when you're on the inside, it's a completely different bag of moral quagmires to untangle. So yeah, what do you think about the inside versus outside duality? And that's an interesting because I like going back to what we were talking about as well, the idea of they drop in just facts and stats. Here's another one where you get in that insiders where we're kind of spilling out facts, but it's to build his point where his boss tells him basically Pittsburgh spent 23 million for the stadium, you know, which means they closed schools and raised taxes. The NFL owns a day of the week, the same day the church used to own. <laughs> it's just a really good light way of, get, of just conveying the giant structure of it, the idea of how much money is going into this. The money's going for the stadium. It's not going towards schools. It's not going towards housing. People don't give a shit about that. They care about Sunday football. And I love the way it's conveyed in that in those lines because it's kind of opposite what we were just saying with the facts. Because we get what I thought was the weird metaphor about your brain and cement when you're hit with CTE. It's a vivid metaphor. It works basically saying your brain's clogged with cement over time. And it's going to harden. And when those pipes harden, they're unrecognizable. But the way it was delivered isn't the same way it was delivered as the uh, when he really gives them the shock and awe of how powerful the NFL really is. It owns a day of the week. I love the way that's conveyed into like, here's what your uphill battle is again. You're battling an American institution. And you, you may feel like you're an American hero. Like it says, you should be celebrated as an American hero, but you won't be. Yeah, I want to take that one step further. All great points. I was just about to touch upon, so I'm so thankful you did. But not only are you battling American institution, you're battling an American religion, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the parallel that they are creating this film. You yeah. are battling a religion. The whole system of sanctimony and piety and idolatry and worship and devotion and commitment and faith and every aspect of religiosity is in the culture of football, right? And that's what he is up against. And as we know, uh, social cultures or social constructs and groups and institutions and religions are very robust things. Rationality, facts, logic, a strong argument are not necessarily going to be able to infiltrate them or debunk them or take them down. But I want to now flip, right? Uh, a little bit and stick up for what Amalu does serve. I'm not entirely in defense of the NFL at all, right? And there's a lot of things we have to talk about in terms of just how shady the NFL is portrayed in this film. Unbelievably so. I really like his point, even though it's another kind of roll your eyes, obvious metaphor of the fact that a soldier going to war knows that they possibly can die. And a football player knows they could possibly be paralyzed they possibly get a concussion, but they have the right to also know that they can possibly get CTE. And that's a very important fundamental point that transcends all of this. And that's the real conflict of this film is the fact that more than anything, more than a policy he wants to get through, more than putting sanctions or penalizing the NFL or trying to cancel football, he fundamentally wants the science and the information to be disseminated, to be known so that people can make mature, cognizant, informed Form decisions about what risks they're willing to take. And that's where we get a really meaty, juicy, dramatic narrative that comes around the halfway point where you get 
the dirty politics of the NFL. You see Roger Goodell throwing completely facile conferences, just a pageantry under the pretense of a symposium so that they look like they're tackling the issue, but they're not. Beyond though, just the science, beyond the science being out there, what do you think is the responsibility of the NFL? I know that they're trying to taint and uh, stain our image of the NFL. So Knowing that, I want us to be a little bit more, not forgiving of the NFL, but uh-huh. try to be a little bit more nuanced, right? Because it's just so easy to jump yeah. on them, right? Because they're, the, they're, they're vilified, right? But what do you think about the NFL after seeing this film? It's really yeah. hard to paint the NFL in a good light any way you look at this film. Because like you said, basically it's all about just admit, for one, that you knew what was going on. Because that's the other thing in the film. It has one scene where it explains how the NFL stacked the deck for their, for their research. And how it explains how it's not real research, it's research that's repeated by a committee which i think is important because that's the other thing this mo- movie doesn't really talk about is how scientific information is disseminated from the scientific community and then transferred to the public and that disjunction and just and obviously the balance is getting the nfl to admit that this is going on so in that regard it's really hard to like look at the nfl in any good light in this particularly when you look at how much information they had the way they stacked the deck just the blatant manipulating these settlements of the families and who they're trying to keep out of these settlements for the longest time up until a few years ago were they able to actually start claiming on these things so much shady stuff i'm trying not to draw too much stuff from my outside knowledge of it and just what the film does but it's really hard to look at it especially when we look at professional sports as the way these issues are addressed because you mentioned the way they're conveyed to us the fans is interesting too because we have a, the example here i forgot which person it is who shoots himself at the end of the movie ex-football player who's in one of the safety councils that Roger Goodell put him on. Anyways, I'll come back to his name. But it's this idea that we see across professional sports, the idea that if you put someone who used to play the sport in a safety position, it gives it some sort of authority for the fans and then a bridge to the scientific community, but it's not really true. And I think that was one thing we saw here when it comes out to him shooting himself and you know basically asking him to donate his body to science, which I thought was obviously really happening, but I feel like the way it ends there. It's just so hard to, when you look at all the effects of, just like you said, when you know you can break your spine and all this, but you don't realize you can just lose your mind and still be healthy and that your employer was aware of that information and just didn't want you to know it because they're legally liable there's no way to really like paint that in a good light totally but it also gets into the fascinating pathologies of corporations Uh, Mm -hmm. there's a few books out there i haven't read them but i've read excerpts i've listened to their writers on podcasts that analyze and deconstruct the entire like infrastructure of corporate organisms they think about them as not individualistic discrete entities they can be they all have their own peculiarities, but in many ways they exist like organisms and they do certain things. And it's very rare for any corporation to willingly self-implode, right? Or to willingly disclose information that is going to possibly sabotage their bottom line. So the NFL is in a very, very tough predicament with this. And what you brought up that's really important is that yes, it's not only that Amalu wants the information out there, because it is, right? He published it. We live in a free country. You could go on the academic journal and find it, right? That there needs to be something more, right? Because football players are not going to do that. And, and he knows that, and that's, the film knows that. And mm-hmm. so what this film shows is that there's a responsibility. There's a basic human level of goodwill, altruism, 
and conscientiousness that demands that if you know you are employing individuals to do something that puts them at mortal and psychological and biological risk to disclose that information. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what this film gets at. It's not just that the information needs to be out there or the NFL needs to do anything specifically, but they need to address it and they need to create a campaign to really inform their players. Now, what we get is that the NFL, even as recent as a few years ago, they say this in the footnotes at the end of the film, the epilogue, right? 5,000 lawsuits against the NFL were settled on the condition that they wouldn't have to disclose the dangers of concussions. So you see, they're just still trying to hide things. Mm -hmm. They're actually less in my mind is scared of the lawsuits, which suck for them, but they could take the hit of lawsuits. They can. It's more damage to the culture. Yes. They can't take the damage of the culture. And that's where that great, great quote comes in where it's, he says that if like 10% of moms decide not to put their kids in football, we're over. I don't quite think it's that dramatic, but I do get what he's saying. He's saying it it would create a domino effect in which the entire industry would slowly implode. And the NFL has done things in recent years. First of all, the helmets. And you know more about this. What could you say about the changes that have been made to helmets in the past decade or so? Well, obviously helmet protection like that's always updating. It's still the same basic design though. That's worth noting. Yeah, it's pretty much the same basic design. Yeah, but helmets have at least gotten a lot more padding. I know that they've updated the helmets since this because of this too because one of the ways also got this we're going to talk about like a different sport for a second because there's a couple ways to look at it. like when we look at hockey players will sometimes say concussions are a result of there being less enforcers on the ice now because hockey's moving away from fighting to protect players from concussions i.e meaning the threat of someone out there who could potentially fight you would mean you wouldn't hit as much it's just uh, more of a player mentality there but it's an interesting way of a way some games police themselves right <laughs> way the you no know i mean there's there's a code among players and when we change the rules and stuff like that we don't always alter the code and sometimes we leave players more vulnerable so i'll use my example like city cross like how many concussions that guy has he played at a time when there's not as much fighting versus like a player like wayne gretzky who had his own bodyguard never got a concussion really just using that kind of as a just a blatant simplified example of these weird ways these games also police themselves among the players and that's something this movie didn't talk about which i think is kind of a a flaw in it because it doesn't give that perspective of the player playing the position yeah that's a really fascinating way to look at it. I've never looked at it in that way, but I get it. But I was trying to connect that point back with football, though. Is there's this new thing, like, right, the way you hit the quarterback now, right, is different. I feel like every season now in the last five years, there's different rules on where you can hit them. Like, you can't hit them low anymore. I feel like the way we protect the quarterback inadvertently is going to hurt the players pursuing the quarterback because of the way they don't want to give them the full hit. At least, well, there's all sorts of ways we can look at it where players are, might hurt themselves trying to protect other players, which I always find interesting, too. Yeah. And you see how it's already altered the game so tremendously. The rules protecting players often now feel counter, not counterintuitive, but they've really hampered the natural ethos and flow of the game. You feel so callous to complain about it, but frustrating when you're watching as a fan, I believe I'm thinking of one example that I was able to hopefully bring up was the Ohio State bowl game last year. I think against Clemson, they were leading big time and they had a, I think third, uh, third down sack, but they, the, the player hit a little high and his helmet touched the quarterback's helmet. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they get the 15 yard personal foul, there, yeah. a new set of downs. They get a touchdown that literally changed the game. Perfect. That was a perfect example. Yeah. Like, it would have been a blowout. And this happens time and time again already. And not only that is imagine the odd state of paradoxical contradictions that we are 
expecting a defensive player in football to abide by as they're out there running at top speed in pads and a helmet in a physical game and suddenly have to like abide by certain rules and go against physics when their whole point is to tackle it's very very tricky and so what we're seeing too is now the awkward experimental years where we're trying mm-hmm. to protect players, right? It's very intense now. You can get kicked out in college for a helmet-to-helmet hit. I think they keep you up for the next game, too, in some situations. We saw with the Oakland Raiders linebacker who went to ASU. He got kicked out for the whole season, I think, in the third game last year for a helmet-to-helmet hit which I actually, he was furious. And I kind of understand. It was like, he explained all these hypocrisies in which other players did stuff like got in real fights and didn't get kicked out and got kicked out for playing too hard. It's been really tricky for the sport. And yeah, you 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 illustrated a common complaint there precisely. Like the idea of you have to take the safeties off sometime, right? But we're in this weird point where we don't even know why we're putting the safeties on because we don't even know the results of these safeties yet. Yes, but then there's the point of like caution first too, right? Because we don't know the repercussions. We know that they're pretty bad. So I'm going to bring up another quote at this point. And they did, I think, 111 scans so far of deceased NFL players, 111. And granted, these chosen players likely had a ton of prerequisites that pointed towards having CTE. But even with that, 110 of the 111 had some form of CTE. And this was in a study released in 2017. So this is not a fractional percentage. This is 99.99%, at least of this study of players showing some degree of CTE. And that's pretty damning facts right there. What we get in this film is another element that I think they weaved in pretty nicely. And it's some glimpses of just how claustrophobic and confused and suicidal and angry and mercurial these players can get. And there's actually four stages of CTE. And before we jump into talking about some of the players they depict in this film, I just want to kind of go over these four stages. The first symptoms are basically headaches and loss of attention. Then we get mood swings, explosivity, short-term memory loss, uh, and a little bit of executive dysfunction. And this is all the second stage still. In the third stage, we get full-blown memory loss, explosivity, and difficult holding attention, bouts of extreme aggression, visuospatial disorientation, apathy, and impulsivity. And by the fourth stage, it is basically everything I've said just amplified to a degree. It just gets incrementally worse and worse with this disease. So we're not talking about a light material. They're playing with fire to a degree, and you can't downplay that either. With all these stages, and thinking about Webster, and they don't bring up Junior Seau until like the end credits, a lot of references and some clips of players who have either committed suicide or gone completely mad or become homicidal, like the Hernandez twin, Mm -hmm. um, and all of the ramifications of this disease. And it's pretty intense. So what do you think about the depictions of the old players in this film? Okay, so I'm going to start with our main man, Iron Mike Webster. Because his first depiction, he looks like Biff from Back to the Future. It just threw me off, makeup-wise. So I was doing doing a double take for a second. But once I realized it wasn't Biff, I was like, all right, Mike Webster. But the scenes with him in his car, huffing whatever he's huffing, and then the the scene where he's tasing himself to go to sleep, those really resonated with me. I love the way they're shot. I think he just killed the just the pain and insanity. And this is before we understand what CT is in the, in the film. Just his desolate lifestyle, how he's living. Then the way we're introduced to Alec Baldwin in that. I, I thought that was well constructed. From the, when we first see Mike Webster at his absolute lowest, I was like kind of like all in at that point. It's very visceral and 
it really is emotionally gripping the scenes with him. And yeah. it's true. He truly did taser himself doing all sorts of self mutilations. Yeah. I was going to say that they didn't explain this, why he self mutilated though. I know it's supposed to be a, from him going mad, but there's a part they mentioned he ripped his teeth out and glued him back in. Yes. And I remember my first question is like, well, why the f- did he do that? I'm just hoping <laughs> they tell me, but yeah, that's pretty metal. Like <laughs> It is very metal, but in a little bit of defense, right? I think that you said it, it's going mad. There was no reason. That's what's so terrifying right the brain was literally decaying and Mm -hmm. you brought up earlier the metaphor of pouring wet concrete down kitchen pipe Mm -hmm. and it's such a great metaphor it is very vivid that's why i really appreciated it i knew it sound once again stilted but it's a great way to explain the neuroscience that's going on basically they are like will smith says in this scene neurologically entangled and strangled from the inside out Mm -hmm. and this metaphorical wet concrete hardens right it ossifies and calcifies their neural network and leaves their own identities unrecognizable even to themselves. It's basically a plaque, right? That's killing the proteins in the brain. And I've listened to tons of neurological scientists talk about all sorts of stuff similar to this, like amyloid beta plaques that build up and why we need sleep to clean them out. And this stuff is legitimate real science now. And you can't, if it gets too bad, overcome it with some therapist or perhaps there's a drug out there, but not yet. We're talking about unstoppable, untreatable neurological degeneration it's pretty gnarly so i am glad they depicted the players and the other player i don't know it's another stealer right yeah it's justin strislick i think is how you pronounce it yes justin strislick he's intense too because you see that it's only affecting them but their families he goes and drives on the wrong side of the freeway they're only very very subtle about that right but i believe he gets in a head-on accident and dies Um, yeah he's in a police chase actually is what happened with that at least in real life he's in a police chase drove on the wrong side of the road and hit an oil tanker i think or a gas truck or something like that crazy right and this is rash impulsive behavior i love how raw that scene is though the way they switch from the real what looks supposed to appear like real footage to him going off on his family yeah the intensity of that scene was just something about it i thought it was really well done there was kind of a almost snarky irony that the family's all wearing football gear and having fun watching football on the scene but i think it works it works in a fictional way it works in a literary way Mm -hmm. and that's what this film is accepting it for what it is i think that really works as you see like the naivety the pageantry of the sport as a pastime right it's a sunday experience which is legitimate it's totally legitimate and so that contrast is really well done i think and the behind the scenes consequences that it can have in his story now you also mentioned that alec baldwin plays the team's doctor who becomes sort of a you know he defects and he has the most torturous i would say experience almost of anyone this this is the movie i want to see actually yeah in many ways right because he truly does absolutely love the game and he hates going against the nfl right he has like Um, real sorrow for his role he's played in it like, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it has all the the components you want of a, of a good story it does the reluctant kind of self-loathing crusader and we get another iteration of that role we saw in any given sunday right you know he wasn't as shysty as that character at least as the film shows him to be especially because he turned into a good guy but you know he did some of the stuff that was a little mm-hmm. bit morally dubious at the very least there's a quote later that says you know we have to do whatever it takes to keep these players in the game tape needles vicodin percocet i love how that quote mm-hmm. it keeps getting more and more intense right tape okay needles hmm what does that mean vicodin okay and then percocet like you know it just mm-hmm. goes up right from you know taping an injury to taking steroids you know and extreme painkillers and alec baldwin's role i liked uh quite a lot he is the mediator between amalu and the nfl right because he knows everyone and he sets up that really interesting nighttime 
kind of is in sort of a swanky restaurant slash bar overlooking the the Steelers Stadium, mm-hmm. which they did a really nice job in this film of just always showing the stadium in the background, right? Yeah, it's always uh, looming over him, right? Yes, it's always it's in the background of Albert Brooks's office um, when Will Smith drives across the bridge. It's in the background. It's a beautiful gleaming stadium, right? And they wanted to make the point home that the city has put so much money into it, and it's the heart of the city. It's the pulse of the city, as the scene that I started this talking about uh, says. You get that there's going to be a huge fight. And one of the films this movie was compared the most to, and we're going to get that in the reviews, is The Insider. And it really is. It really is The Insider. And it's so much The Insider that they even uh, have a quote in Concussion that says, oh, this reminds me of tobacco companies. It says that they're forced to recognize their own hazards through a spate of litigation. I think that The Insider is much better, though. And have you seen The Insider? No, I haven't. Okay. With Russell Crowe, it's based around his 60 Minutes episode where he goes out against, you know, Big Tobacco and Uh totally changed the whole cultural landscape towards cigarettes overnight. And I think that's what this film wanted to do. And that's where I think it might have somewhat failed because it really made a little splash, right? But Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, trying to find this film for this movie, it's not up there with other, you know, sports movies or or films about football. It's not on any of the major streaming platforms like readily available, especially right now during football season. I don't think they have a lot to it. Yeah, it is it. But it's it is it's kind of sad because it is a clean film. It gets all of the information very succinctly broadcast to you in a very yeah. you know, lucid way filled with like illuminating moments of dialogue and mm-hmm. examples. So it's like a good class lesson too on the subject. There's a great quote when Will Smith is talking about all the different types of animals. I love that one too. I don't know if you wrote this one down, but the woodpecker and how many times a woodpecker will peck a tree, the bighorn sheep, the bird diving and how fast it dives into the water. And it's a bit gratuitous. It doesn't feel I, yeah. authentic, but it's interesting to hear. And he even calls himself out. It's a little wink in my mind. I did like mm-hmm. that for being just a little orotund in his speaking, right? In his rhetoric, mm-hmm. like no one wants to hear this. But no, it's a good point too, because he builds it into this argument that these animals have natural shock absorbers. The woodpecker's tongue wraps around its entire brain. I love that visual because then you get the visual of what CTE is caused by, the brain bouncing around in the skull. And you get this really grotesque, fascinating fact about the woodpecker's tongue goes yeah, through. It's, it's really weird, right? Yeah, it comes out of I like, skull. I like, I like that point because for me, for all those reasons, it's a very good, clear-cut metaphor, scientific. But the question he's raising, it drew me to any given Sunday in the character Shark. Because while mm. humans aren't meant to play football, you offer them a million dollars to give them a set of pads, they will play football till they can't till they literally can't <laughs> and that's that's one of the things i thought about there is no evolutionary we're not predisposed to play football but with the money and all that shit there you better believe you have the skill set because at the same time we are predisposed like football you have to be you have to hit the genetic lottery to make the nfl there is a um kind of like physical disposition to be playing but uh, that was the other thing i thought was like yes we aren't biologically meant to take those impacts but for the right bonus you can better believe the person will do that and willingly because that's with shark we, we the information is known shark i love sharks the way it's conveyed through him because it's all visual he's losing his mind too but he wants that bonus because again the, the attachment towards family not even glory the idea that he has to provide for his family you just launched upon the exact um kind of debate that i had going on in the very back of my brain and i wanted to somehow find a way to introduce about this and i couldn't so thank you very much but yeah <laughs> And it's perfectly realized with your uh, bringing up shark, your example of shark. And it's the fact that we at once don't maybe have a natural predisposition to play quote unquote football, but we do have very specific like human physiques and prototypes that would not have much else 
to do in the uh, common modern social civil composition or the, you know, the blue of modern life without football. And I had this conversation with my wife when we were walking the other day after I watched this film. And it was that, okay, they are anatomically ill-equipped for some of the things that happen in football, right? But then you also have to think like, what do linebackers and centers, those individuals have in this world if you take away like all things like football? I was just curious. We've already taken away so much for like, I would say the burly husky big man. And this is getting too almost honest or like kind of the unspoken thing that I think we kind of all recognize, but aren't willing to say, but they're kind of, you know, the big behemoth of, of a figure is not as tailored to, to modern life in 2020. Our world favors still a, a computer digital interface in which we're more Android than physiological for many of our jobs. And we, we kind of shun the body we, with the, along with violence and stuff for a lot of good reasons, but it's like, what's the outlet? What's their catharsis? Yeah. What's their fact, glory? The opposite, yeah, the opposite is when you have like the job you described, your emphasis on your body is how do you keep it healthy and comparison to the job you have that's not active so it hurts your body to some degree that's whereas, true, yeah as whereas with them it's like the idea of like that's part of the appeal of football at least i'm gonna use like me as example when you're young and you want to play pro sports i'm not going to pursue it's the idea that it's not a job like that it's not in the walls it's not a nine to it's not your traditional nine to five it's something more visceral that you can't do in the office the idea like you know that, that you get to hit your buddies uh-huh. yeah and i like to think of every body type and this is a weird thought i sometimes go over like has some sort of a a hierarchy of possible roles in society. And it's, we're not only defined by body types by any means, but you know, if you're skinny and slender, you may be a ballerina, like a woman, you know, ballerina, mm-hmm. figure skater. But I'm just trying to, there's a diversity no, of things. a good point. There's, yeah. there's a tool. Our bodies are tailored to certain tooling and certain functions. Exactly. And we created- Other bodies aren't tailored for. Where we use them for that or not, it's another thing. But yeah, you're completely right. That's very well put. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, right. We're innately equipped and tailored to certain archetypes, which we have created, but we created them for a reason. And I think the reason far transcends just the very few who actually get to live their lives in it. I think it's important for all big dudes to be able to watch football players and get a sense of pride vicariously through it. And that's a really weird thing to me, but it, I think it's, it's, it's true. It's hard to like empirically show this is a truth, mm-hmm. but I would say statistically more big dudes like football than most demographics. I think there's a reason for that. It gives them a sense that there is something that society still reveres for its beauty, for its mm-hmm. elegance, for its competitive heroicism. It's not just a blue collar like job filling cement and stuff. And I think we should totally glorify those jobs too. Mm-hmm. Those are awesome. It's sad we don't. A little bit of reality TV does that, which is really cool. I'm fascinated by that too. But I think you lose something if you take away every job that has some semblance of violence. And mm-hmm. I think that the the argument that just a glorified version version of gladiatorial sadism in which we're enslaving these big burly humans and making them perform violence is myopic. I, there's a degree of truth to that. I'm not going to deny that there might be a degree of truth, but it's not getting at the whole picture. And today I read an article about euphemisms. And I want to bring this up because I think it's a really nice analogy. And it was that we use euphemisms and we update them about every 30 to 40 years. And this was really interesting. It said like, we started off with crippled and then crippled moved to disabled and disabled moved to handicapped and handicapped now moved to differently able. And the euphemisms become more and more soft and tender and delicate. Mm-hmm. And we kind of did the same with a lot of sports. I think our sports have becoming incrementally less violent. And maybe we will weed out these sports in three or 400 years, but we can't just do it overnight. I think that would be too traumatic or too drastic to mm-hmm. a lot of people. And who knows, it could go the reverse, right? We could turn into a dystopian where it becomes extremely violent. 
which is most of our dystopian apocalyptic films where we get this rebirth of primitivism. Yeah, I'm kind of with you along the lines that I think it'll have the appearance of being safer and safer. I think it already is doing a good job of that. I don't think it's necessarily safer. I think it just looks like they want it to be safer with concussion protocols, like I said, the rules and hits like that. But where, where it actually ends up, I think it's going to end up with them looking at a better way to compensate players after the fact and the culture will kind of still remain. I think that's going to be the next lever of change is find a better lever of compensation to account for this after the fact of when a player retires. Because like we just kind of mentioned, the, the way it's ingrained in our culture, the econ- economic impact, and just how many jobs the NFL you know, produces around the world, around the, the country, that illusion of safety will definitely still be the key component to that so you think that that's what roger goodell's next move is is pure or the whole nfl it's just we're going to come pure cosmetic cosmetic yeah, i do I feel right I now do, it's cosmetic yeah. and i think it's a move to how do you put into what is a what appears as some sort of retirement compensation program that's better suited towards athletes to stabilize their lives something labeled as that will eventually be sticked with the players union yeah to keep football going because it is, it's something players want to do. And some kids want to still do and grow up and they want to play football. And I think even with this information, all that, kids are still going to want to play professional sports for the reason we just said, because a lot of kids, don't, no kid wants to grow up to work in an office. No, that's it. I mean, that's not everyone's dream, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think the, it's a very tiny percentage who actually like grow up to actually play professional football. And CTE is pretty small. I think if you look at the mass population of America and what it provides for us, uh, mm-hmm. it's pretty disproportionate, I think, in benefits. It's something we need to worry about for sure we need to inform mitigate because it's something that we look at across sports it's the idea of players how they're left afterwards after the fact seems to be the biggest issue as well figuring that safety net for them across the board whether it be boxing hockey any of these ones and it reminds me of the x game sports adventure sports it reminds me of that all those sports deal with very real moral dilemmas they are Mm. very dangerous motocross is insane absolutely psycho anyone yeah. who does motocross is a fucking psycho and i love it <laughs> and we do love it and i think there's a good reason why we'd love it too right and even uh well this one's very different right but free solo right that one's pretty free of a, the moral dilemma almost because mm-hmm. it's basically suicidal if anything or you know you're only going to kill yourself and it's the most dangerous sport yeah. imaginable but that film has a brilliant development in which basically becoming emotionally attached to a woman, Alex Honnold, suddenly has a completely new complication in his sport, right? Mm-hmm. He was totally willing before he had truly fell in love and created a relationship with someone that he truly cared about, I think, to to die at peace if he did make a fatal mistake. And it was interesting to see that he still hadn't accomplished basically the pinnacle of his career, which was El Capitan. And, and she arrives, and then he has some injuries. And then you have this moral quagmire of how selfish is this to risk my life when people love me and I love them, you know what I mean? But then you have these sports, which it it has that on a personal level, and then you have it on the social and the familial level. And then you have other sports where it's interactive as well. So you can hurt other people. And there's all sorts of layers of ethical entanglements that become compiled upon each other the more you get into some of these sports. And there's one more film that is fascinating I kind of don't want to talk too long, but it's a snowboarding film about a snowboarder who paralyzed himself and somehow like recovered. And it's him deciding whether to snowboard again. And it is a gripping, emotionally like exhausting film. You can watch that with this. It would be amazing, a double feature because that whole film is about the internal 
warfare of doing what you love and possibly ruining your life or taking a more muted approach that allows for longevity. Great film. And so, yeah, this is, I think, at the real crux of the philosophical dilemma of this movie. It's this balance. It's this calibration of risk versus reward. And it's it's not very easy to, to pinpoint. Anyone who tries to say it's easy, well, uh, you don't care enough. And so you're not the person to really jump in on the argument. And so, yeah, that film that I mentioned about snowboarding is called The Crash Reel. It came out in 2014. And it is about a snowboarder named Kevin Pierce. Definitely, if you're interested in this sports philosophical quandary, check that out along with concussion. It would make a really nice back-to-back viewing. All right, so I have to ask, what do you think about Luke Wilson as Roger Goodell? Oh, man, I don't know if that was like a smack in the face of Luke Wilson or just to pump Roger Goodell's confidence up. <laughs> that casting choice took me by surprise. Because <laughs> I was like, when they're building it, when, they, when they're going to transition, they're going to introduce that the previous commissioner is going to drop out. I'm like, oh, they're going to introduce Goodell. My first thought is, who's going to play Roger Goodell? And my first thought was not fucking Luke Wilson. That's for goddamn sure. So I found that part, I was, I was laughing out loud. <laughs> I don't think it was intended for me to laugh out loud. All right. So I'll let you be the the more favorable version. Uh, You're Luke Wilson. You run the NFL. What do you do? This is a tough one, but what do you do? Uh, man, I'm, I'm too moral. I, I, I'd have to compensate the players out there. I don't go the settlement route. So what do you mean by compensate the players? I'm curious. You've made a lot of money off of a lot of suffering and you're trying to basically half that amount in the settlement. Hmm. But I, 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 I don't mean, feel, yeah, me, I have a different opinion. I feel like these players make an inordinate amount of money still. I do. Once you're in the but NFL. They did make an inordinate amount of money and I'm not going to say CTE is, can be a 50, 100% contributed to them blowing their money. I'm not, I'm not making that argument. But based on what we know about the NFL knew about CTE and the fact that they never put any type of education for them in sense. And no, I mean, there's no type of safety net for them, not necessarily financially, even informational wise. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just based on that knowledge, like you really got to pay out the families for that on a moral level. Okay, on a symbolic level. On a symbolic, but again, yeah. I'm not looking at this as an economic business decision. If I was Roger Goodell, I'd literally do what Roger Goodell is doing. I'd take the booze and I'd be a little more forceful. I, I, would, I don't know if I'd be as, um, oh, I guess I actually would take the same route as him. I would do the cosmetic safety routine, I think. I have to say, like, he's done a good job of keeping eyes on football despite this. Yeah. Uh, it's... Like, there's no way around it. There's no way to look at it. Like, from a business way of him handling it, take out all all the other national anthem all that other crap from like the way you look at cte and football and just me as someone discussing this on the podcast and i still tune in on sundays yeah he's done a very good job of that yeah yeah and you know we we care about as americans how many people are employed by jobs uh, we care about our economy mm-hmm. we don't only care about this because ceos get richer now i wish we had a rule i actually do i wish we had a ceiling i don't think it's anti-american or anti-capitalist to have a ceiling on how much uh, you can make as a ceo i absolutely don't and there's actually amazing facts that companies with CEOs that make less almost it's almost one-to-one do better they're more successful uh, to a degree like is CEOs that truly care about their company are not getting the biggest paychecks always it they might be worth a lot right like so for example we like to throw out like how much musk and them are worth right but usually a lot of that money is already tied up into things they don't actually like pull out like a huge they don't get a paycheck like a yearly paycheck so it's a little different too it's it's tricky when you have that much money it's almost like it's dumb money like it doesn't even it doesn't even really make sense when we try to compare ourselves to some of these CEOs put things in analogous terms it's comparing apples to oranges in my opinion it doesn't work so yeah I get your point on the compensation right but I think it's symbolic 
And I think they both make stupid money. I think that professional sports players are absurdly overpaid and so are the people who run the industries. But it doesn't only affect them, it affects the news stations and the news anchors and the person holding the camera for the news anchor and the guy cleaning up the trash at the stadium and the people Mm -hmm. working the parking lots at the stadium. And it affects the marketer for Coca-Cola who gets an annual salary because they're going to put out an ad in the Super Bowl. I could just keep going. I could talk for an hour for how the ripple effects of an industry are gargantuan, right? And so it's another thing we don't, I don't ever think fairly show. When you get into economics, you realize like, and I hate this because I'm so against trickle down economics as well. And that's what I kind of sound like I'm arguing or advocating for or defending or trying to qualify is that like, we should have empathy to the people at top. Because I think that they, They'd be cr- pretty crummy people, extremely greedy and absurdly so. But the way we vilify like the Roger Goodell and the way we vilify the NFL is tricky because then you ask yourself, what would you do, right? You're the NFL. Mm-hmm. What, what would you do? I don't know. Like I would take the cosmetic route too. Right. I would try <laughs> to probably get the information out in a diluted way. I would want them to know enough, but I would probably hire savvy rhetoricians to make it not too intense. So that I would feel personally less morally culpable and I would feel a degree of integrity because I would want them to get it right, but I wouldn't want it to be the harshest uh, delivery of the information by any means. And that alone is itself, well, then you're trying to kind of trick people and it's, yeah, but you also have the responsibility of your not sure. Everyone always says those for your shareholders, right? Because that's such a frivolous thing. It really kind of is. It's not only that too, because it's, you know, it's a lot of normal people's 401ks are tied up into these companies, right? But no, you have the entire industry writing on your back. And I know that their decisions probably aren't that altruistic and thinking about that, but they are important in both ways. We don't want just every industry to corrupt because there's a glitch or there's a chink in the armor. They should be a little bit stalwart and we have to fight. There should be this push and pull. I love journalism. I love undercovering and exposing these things. And I think it's so healthy to know. But unfortunately, we're not able to just understand the like inherent contradictions and, and just uneasiness of things, the ambiguity, the ambivalence mm-hmm. of life. I feel like it's a culture too much so we have this like good guy versus bad guy or this like, you know, the evangelical journalist versus the completely demonic corporation when really it's just a dialectic that's inherent in almost everything in life. I think that in that sense, this film rubbed me the wrong way too, is that it never gave any argument or insights for the NFL. They were very, very one dimensional. Yeah. And, and like that, you said, so didactically too, because when we are introduced to the NFL, it's complete like shadiness. The setting itself, you got that cam following our guy walking into the office to deliver the news. To me, the, the way it was even conveyed, like we know we're in the lair of the villain. You don't get that with uh, any of the other <laughs> settings per se. I love how you put that, the lair of the villain. Yeah. That's it. I'm like, That's right away, they're, they're just sitting around talking about like this information. Like, okay, so what are we going to do about this? But the way, you know, the close-ups on their face, the seriousness, they look so mean or evil doing it, I guess. And mm-hmm. we can't help but think they're up to something nefarious in that room. Exactly. But that's what Oliver Stone kind of showed. I think he has a kind of cynical view too. But mm-hmm. I do think he humanized all the characters in this film to a degree too. Oh, yeah. As you point out, you connected a clear economic tie to each one too. Mm-hmm. So there's, just, there's a clear push of both like the human in that movie at any given Sunday and then their value to the franchise. Yeah. How they're a piece that can just be moved and tossed away with, which is also the reality, which this movie didn't necessarily do either. This is more about, you're supposed to feel pathos for them as individuals and humans, not for them as like a commodified worker. That's what I got out of this one. Whereas with any given Sunday, you feel there's this like, they're being just used and drained and they're going to be tossed out. Whereas this, it's it's much more we're supposed to feel really for the people they leave behind. I, I still feel like it's the families that particularly the, the family of 
Justin Sterzlik stands out for me in this one as the yeah, most uh, effective of what we're supposed to feel. Definitely, and his wife, right? Yeah. They show her in the final speech in the film, so I think they really tie it into him. Um, yeah, she has a small role, but she actually, I think her facial expressions do a good job of the delivery. True, yeah, for whatever the actress, right? It was yeah. a pretty good job. And you get to actually that really nice dynamic of like she represents someone who likes football but dealt with the worst consequences possible yeah. from it right and they show her face right as Amalu is talking about the beauty of the game as well right mm-hmm. to try to kind of sugarcoat the bad news he's about to deliver right the bear of that's bad true news, yeah right yeah but um, <laughs> the poor uh, guy just wants, just wants people to be smarter and then, and then you yeah. know Get totally death, get death threats <laughs> great discussions through and through now let's move a little bit to what some other people thought Rotten tomatoes it's 59 percent in critical reviewers opinions that's out of 201 reviews it's a good amount i'd say that's very fair 59 percent feels about right in terms of the audience it's a bit of higher 74 percent yeah it surprised me a bit and then i was like will smith and we love the films that are like crusade films against corporations good and point. christmas time film I know that most people saw it probably later, but I think it's about right. I think right between is mine, kind of, say like a 66%. Yeah, so let's look at a few of some of the quotes that we plucked. Tim Roby at the Daily Telegraph says, Concussion takes a serious subject, brain damage caused to professional American football players, and the collusion of the medical establishment in covering it up, and renders it in full bore, crashing bore, Oscar court prestige drama mode, end quote. First of all, Tim Roby is British, so I love that too. So he kind of doesn't get it, but then he's perfect for it too, right? Because this film's all about the, the interplay of being not American, <laughs> the back and forth that that creates with this whole argument, right? It's much easier for someone, I think, that's a foreigner to form an opinion. But I love his end. Oscar courting prestige drama mode bore, uh, whatever. <laughs> all those words, I just kind of threw them yeah. out and vomit. But yeah, kind I love of- the Oscar courting prestige, because I, I got that out of that scene when he has a tell the truth. The truth. <laughs> for me that, the accent stands out there and everything but like you get what it's going for but i'm like this, this isn't to me it's not an oscar worthy movie it's not but it's going for it yeah exactly so yeah i'll let you take the next one so this one's from kate moore who says smith takes on amalu's nigerian accent and two perfect grammar with confidence as this man with eight university degrees and an iron respect for science finds his research being crushed by the dollar rolling might of the nfl machine and even the fbi i like her use of words here the dollar yeah. rolling might of the nfl machine that's a great way of describing this movie and the nfl's take on this issue i love the and we didn't really talk about it. the scene with the fbi was interesting it's kind of just tossed in there that the nfl is just like shady as fuck like we got fbi ties boo we'll fuck your friends up if you don't drop this that's literally what the scene's trying to convey but they don't drop it in there like the nfl is that shady but like i love how it's just it's there and it's it's a footnote at the end in the epilogue that the guy got his charges dropped my mind like you know, i'm not saying roger goodall did this but I'm, i've seen luke wilson in the background drinking some scotch like get me on the phone with the fbi who's his best friend he'll crush him you know that's a life-changing thing to be prosecuted by the fbi <laughs> in a weird way he's a, even if it's inadvertent he's kind of a martyr or like a, not it's kind of like the most sh- one of the most shadiest things the nfl does in this movie is just like kind of brushed over oh absolutely yeah it's pretty wild and it is odd how it's brushed over it's bizarre but yeah, I think this review even has a little bit of a cheekiness when it's bringing up its eight university degrees, its two perfect grammar. Even the editing in that very first scene, they keep cutting it and cutting it and cutting it just so we get these really pithy comments. And I think that's a good metaphor of this film. It just like edits too much of the, the quiet moments. By, by the end, we're just left with something that feels manufactured. Let's move on to Letterboxd. On Letterboxd, Matt Lynch gives it three stars and he says, very short quote, he calls it, 
the diet version of the insider and not so bad as such. Your dad will like this. <laughs> I like that last line. Yeah, it's a dad, dad movie. Like yeah, it's totally a dad movie. And it is kind of a diet version of the insider. The insider <laughs> is better than this film. I actually like the way they put that because I feel like this is a movie we would have seen with like your parents or my parents when we were in like high school. Oh yeah. If we had to go out with parents and like that. This would be like the kind of movie that's out there. Oh, what do you want to see on this, on this lineup? We probably would have picked this one. Yeah, call it to my parents, but this is right up their alley in a good way. You learn a lot. It's a good way to spend two hours. It's like watching 60 Minutes to me. I love 60 Minutes as a kid. It's cursory. It's not the real meat. It's not getting in the intricacies of things, but it's serviceable, I would say. So mm -hmm. I'll let you tackle the last one. It's pretty long. All right, so this is uh, from Sean Gilman, who gave it two stars. The quote starts with, anyway, this movie's kind of terrible. Not content to be a scientific procedural, a social problem film along the lines of Spotlight. It grasps an inspirational biopic onto the story. As with the theory of everything, Hollywood can't seem to tell the story of a man of science without framing him as an instrument of specifically Christian theology. In fact, more than anything, the film is a Christian parable about a man who is tested by God. Showing a glimpse of truth, he is tested in his resolve to defend and evangelize that truth. That the search makes scientific findings of a Nigerian doctor more palatable for red state apple pie God and football moms in the real America is surely a lot lost on the filmmakers. It just makes the whole thing very creepy. Well, there's lots of impact on that one. I like here where Sean zones in on the fact that this film is more of a Christian parable of a man who's tested by God because that is there, but it's not really fleshed out. He is a man, we get the scenes of him as church. Like I said, his wife is essentially dropped in from God through the church to him. Again, he talks about how he has this higher purpose of embodying the American you know, dream, essentially. And then we get him speaking to God before the miscarriage of his child. And we don't really know what to make of that. I, at least in my reading at the end of it, because I don't feel like it's picked up again. It's really, it's, it's all there. I agree with the reading of this, but I feel like that parable isn't fully explored for me to really make a, a meaningful connection out of it, at least on my first viewing. No, I agree. There's a lot to unpack with this review. First of all, it's a great like literary interpretation, but it reminds me of like literary critiques in college where it's so utterly untethered from the text to me that I like value it for its own creativity, but I don't buy it. The Christian element was so muted in this. It was, it was hardly there. So I, I think it's fascinating the way he really like accentuates it in this. I didn't think of it. I didn't think about that that is a common motif in almost all of these science films uh, in recent uh -huh. Hollywood is that they're trying to sort of harness the two or either they want to show the inherent conflict between the two and the turmoil it creates for someone, or they want to show how they're compatible and they want to reconcile Christian theology with science. But I also thought that it's neat to think about this in light of other films like Spotlight or The Theory of Everything because those are all Oscar bait films and that's what this is. And mm -hmm. this one is just Oscar light, as I said, or Oscar diet, um, mm -hmm. diet the insider, or whatever you want to call it. It's not quite up to par. Everything we said, where would you put this film? And this is probably our hardest one yet. At least for mm -hmm. me, it's definitely the hardest one. Would you say it's an overrated or an underdog film? All right. So for me, I'm going to put it as overrated. I'm going to kind of qualify this. This is not a movie I'm going to come back to a second time. Like, this is not a movie I'm going to necessarily, I'd recommend for someone interested in CTE, you know, the dangers of, of hits and whatnot. But I don't see this as a movie that, as we said, it's trying to be the Oscar film. It obviously wasn't the Oscar film. I don't see it standing the test of time based on my first viewing. Most of what I was supposed to get out of this, I already got from as the last movie we did, Any Given Sunday. I feel like I got the bulk of that very condensed and very clearly in Any Given Sunday. And here it was really drawn out to come to the same kind of conclusion. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, first of all, I saw this twice didn't think i would come back to it but the reason why i was able to come back to it is i kind of forgot it so it's forgettable first of all I'll say mm 
that. And now I thought the second time, no, I don't think it's very forgettable because it feeds you a lot of exposition that is both easy to digest and hard to retain at least if you don't kind of repeat it, but it's hard. I do think that I would say that this is an underdog film. Now, is it as good as The Insider? No, it's not up to par with that. Is it Oscar bait? Yes, it is. Is it Treakly? Yes, but it really nicely packages a very timely and I think it's going to be continuously timely because obviously the NFL is doing a really good job cosmetically wrapping up this problem, <laughs> pushing it to the side issue. And it does a very pithy job at getting its points across. It's more entertaining than reading a Wikipedia page. It's well written. I think it's a B minus C plus film for me. But for me, an underdog is just at that that space. If it was any lower, it would be overrated. And the other thing is that it's it's completely marginalized already, right? That makes me suspicious as well. I can see why aesthetically and stylistically, it's not the greatest film. It's not well executed, but it's well written. It's not boring. I didn't fall asleep. I was never bored. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and that's such a pedantic thing to say, but it's so true. It's never it's boring. With a movie like this, this is a movie, like you said, it's a scientific procedural. Yeah. It's hard to make engaging. And this one doesn't, especially because it's just maintaining that serious tone the whole time. It's, it's very hard to, to really jump outside the box without it throwing off the whole composition. Yeah. And it, it packs a lot in, right? You get the depiction of the football players, you get the NFL. You don't get enough of the NFL. That's probably my biggest criticism at the end of all this. Now, at the end of all, if they had more complexity in the NFL, I think this would be even better. If we got like a half and half and you made this half an hour longer, I think it'd be much better. If they toned down a bit of sugar-coated elements, I think it'd be much better. Now, that said, I think that I could easily recommend this to someone. I don't want to watch it again right now by any means. And it's not like a film that really is cinematic by any means. It's more like a really good made-for-TV movie almost. Um, That's a good way of putting it, actually. Yeah, but it's, it's like movie. It's something you'd see, like if I was a teacher and I'm teaching something along the lines of athletes this and this, this is kind of a go-to movie that can explore all sorts of themes and stuff like that. True. Yeah, it's but. a great for teacher and it doesn't hit the emotional strings or it doesn't resonate as strongly as it wants to, but it's very fluid it instructs a lot. Um, it's biased, which I don't like. I'd like to feel more torn apart at the end. I didn't feel super torn apart. But overall, tweak a few things here and there, and it is an Oscar-worthy film. It's not that far from it. But when they fall a little bit short and you could see that they're trying to be it, it kind of, I think at this point, it turns us off because it feels, you know, like like a fraud. It feels like a, a poser film or an imposter. So it's a, it's a lackluster endorsement, but I'm going to say it's an underdog movie because I would not not recommend this to anyone who wants to know about CTE a little bit more. And I I would not feel like I would bore them or waste two hours of their life by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm not going to give a flowery recommendation, but yeah, it's, it's, it's serviceable. So uh, next week, we're going to shift into a much different direction with the NFL. And we're going to keep up with our uh, serious films involving the NFL before we finalize with a more humorous one. And so we're going to go with Invincible with Mark Wahlberg. And you've never seen this, correct? No, I haven't seen this yet. So looking forward to it. Yeah, what's interesting too is it's a Disney film, but it's a Disney film that's really about an adult. It's a little more serious than what we got. So that'll be interesting to analyze. It's also the Philadelphia Eagles. So it's a nice kind of slowly moving from pittsburgh to philadelphia both very blue collar whole uh, east coast cities absolute animal fan bases philadelphia yeah. known for 
for being wild. That's what I'm looking forward to. Most of what I know about this movie is from It's Always Sunny on Philadelphia, the episode where they want to be like Marky Mark in this movie and try to try out for the Philly. So I'm interested to see it a lot having to do with that show. Another great film, kind of making this episode go full circle because we started off with a little bit of a discussion about David O. Russell is Silver Lining Playbook. And you get a really strong subplot. It's definitely not the main plot about the family's diehard love for the Philadelphia Eagles and that as well. So try to watch Silver Lining's Playbook as well since we're, since we're going into Philadelphia Eagles territory. You, you know how diehard their fans are. So next week, we're going to get into Marky Mark territory and dissect Invincible. So I'm excited. And that's it for today. Have a good one.